have been for the last few weeks talking about religion in a variety of ways. Uh, we looked at one week the fact that religion is, is kind of a universal thing. There are some basic things inside of humanity that no matter where you go looking for people and cultures, you find some sort of religious expression. And last week we talked about the fact that that religious expression can be odd and, and unusual depending on different things. And, and today we want to start, our jumping off point is by looking at the fact that religion is usually one of two things. On the one hand, it's either terribly divisive, like I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And it becomes kind of confrontational in that way. In fact, how many of you have heard of the comic uh, Emo Philip? Have you ever heard of Emo Philip? Oh, good. So you've never heard this joke? One guy has heard this joke. Well, this, this just goes to show you how it is. It talks about one day he was walking across a bridge and he saw a man standing on the edge of the bridge, obviously about to, to jump, and he was concerned for him. He says, but sir, don't do it. Don't do it. Stop. He says, why should I stop? He said, because there's so much to live for. What do you mean? He said, well, well are, you, are you atheistic or are you religious? He said, well, well I'm religious. He said, well, well, you know, me too. He said, well, are you, are you Buddhist or, or Christian? Well, I'm Christian. What do you know? Me too. He said, well, well, are you Catholic or Protestant? He said, well, I'm Protestant. He said, what do you know? Me too. Well, are you, are you Methodist or Baptist? He said, well, well, I'm Baptist. He said, what do you know? Are you Methodist? Me too. He said, are you Original Baptist Church of God or are you the Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord? Well, I'm Original Baptist Church of God. He says, what do you know? Me too. He said, well, I, well are, you, are you Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord's Reformation of 1879 or Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord's Reformation of 1915? He said, well, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of the Lord 1879. He says, what do you know? Die, heretic scum. He pushed him. Religion can be divisive. Sorry, I needed my notes. I didn't remember all those steps. So, so we have that kind of thing in religion where we have our, oftentimes, very narrow ways we define things. And if you're not inside that very narrow area, you're, you're out. And sort of the other extreme would be those who say, it doesn't really matter what religion you are because they all kind of talk about the same things. And lead to the same places, all roads, kind of the idea of all roads lead to God. Um, and, and we can see some places where there's overlap in religions of all kinds. In fact, most religions of the world, most major world religions of the world have some version of what we call the golden rule. Now, just so we're clear, my uncle had a shirt that said the golden rule was he who has the gold makes the rules. That is not the golden rule. to obviously Judaism, Christianity. Just pick any one, and there's some version. The wording might be a little different, but at its heart is, is something similar to what we call the golden rule. Um, C.S. Lewis, who a lot of us read for various reasons, wrote a book that's actually quite fascinating. It's called The Abolition of Man. Just kidding. Anybody read The Abolition of Man? Just to get a free copy. 
because the evolution of man, by C.S. Lewis, you think, oh, it's religious book. No. It's a book, in fact, a series of lectures that he wrote about a particular curriculum piece in the British school system for literature. And he critiques that piece, but in one of his agenda, agendum, agendas, uh, whatever, agenda, agenda, the, the, yeah, exactly. Got plenty of that to go around. Um, he, he looks at religions of the world, what he calls in this book the Tao, and he breaks down basically some broad categories of things, commandments, or teachings that most, if not all, religions have in common. Now, because he's C.S. Lewis, he uses words that are C.S. Lewis words, so I'm going to use words that are me words to kind of hopefully make some sense of it. And there are eight things, eight broad categories of things that most any religion you deal with deal with these things. Hopefully they'll pop up on the screen and we can go through them. Uh, first thing, I'm sorry for words that you probably had to skip. First one is don't harm others with word or deed. And most any religion you go to, they're going to say don't harm others. Don't hurt others, either what they say or how you treat them. Honor your parents. Most faiths, if not all faiths, have some value that they place upon honoring the parents. Be kind to your siblings and to the elderly, particularly think of maybe Eastern religions have a lot to say about how you treat and respect grandparents and the elderly. Um, the fourth one, be honest in all your dealings. Which, you know, makes sense. A corollary to it is this one up there, don't lie. Um, the sixth one, don't have sex with another person's spouse. Seven, care for those who are weaker than you. And number eight, put others first. Again, those aren't the categories he uses. If you're looking at his book, you see them described in different ways. But reading through it, they just some things you see over and over and over again in there. These are the things that no matter where you go in the world, no matter what religion you find, somewhere you're going to find these ideas. And, and they're pretty much normal, right? There's nothing really controversial in there, is there? Pretty straightforward. In fact, nothing that we as followers of Christ would have issue with. We can see in our Christian faith, as we follow Christ, all of those things are in there. They're, they're things that we would strive to live up to. And, and what happens, no matter what religion you deal with, because you have this idea of these are some commandments that you ought to do this or you ought not do that, or as the King James would say, thou shalt and thou shalt not do these things, um, what happens is we all recognize that we have failed. All of us in this room, if we're honest, know that if that's what God requires, we don't live up to it. We don't meet those standards. So, well, let's, let's just have a little audience participation. First one. How many of you have harmed others by something you've said or something you've done? Any, anybody here? Just make sure. Okay, good. Just so, so you know you're in good company. Less than kind of a brother or sister like today. Just 
say, okay, we had some honesty on that part. It's very good. Um, how many of you, uh, the next one, have been dishonest in dealing? You say, okay, okay, preacher, now we're getting real close, right? Not, not, not like less than honest, let's say. Maybe, maybe too much passion would be annoying. Let's just deal with that. How many of you have been tempted to be less than honest? been tempted to break number five when I asked about number six. Because you're, you're doing the math, right? You're like, maybe he'll make his point before he gets there. How many of you have ever watched a TV show or read a book or heard about someone somewhere that broke the rules. Is that fair enough to say? If we know that that's sort of it. Now we could keep going and say that there have been times when we've not cared for those who are weaker or, or we've not put others first. There's times in our life where we understand each one of us individually, personally, have not lived up to these sort of things that you see in most any religion, these kind of basic commandments or oughts and ought not to's that most religious faiths hold. And even as we talk about our Christian faith, we know that we haven't lived up to them. And so what that does then for us is creates a problem. If God says, this is how you're supposed to live, these are the what you should do's and these are the what you shouldn't do's, and you admit that you have done the things you shouldn't and haven't done the things you should, you have admitted you've broken the rules, you've broken the law, and so that leaves you at odds with God. That's created a problem between you and God. If God is allowed to make rules, if we recognize Him as God, that He has the right to tell us how we should or should not live, we all come to the point, because of this, that we are at odds with God. And we know that because all of us have a conflict. And we can try to overcome it or ignore it, but we all have that thing inside of us, that guilt that rears its head when we do something wrong and confronts us and convicts us, whether we call it the Holy Spirit as a believer or conscience or Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, whatever it works, depending on what movie you like. There it is. It's there. It's real. We know it. We felt it. We understand it. You don't have to come to church. You don't have to get hellfire and damnation and brimstone and all the other parts of hell preaching to come at you. You understand fundamentally that you are not able to keep the rules that God has given. And so if that is the case, the question is, what do we do about it? religion, that's sort of the universal problem that all religions bring us. There is some authority, there is some God, call it what you want, He has given rules, you have broken them, and now you have a problem, what do you do? And so today we're going to look at what the, the scriptures tell us, the Bible tells us, what Paul writes to a group of believers at Rome them, this is how you handle that, because it is the human experience. It is our common 
understanding of what life is like. And one of the things that happens, and you know, I know we're a way long away from Christmas, but we're familiar with the Christmas story. The angel comes and says to the shepherds, what does the angel say to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you glad tidings of great joy, which are for... I know that's like two different versions and it's in the one place, but I'm sorry. Sometimes I need to learn God's name together. But that's it. It's for all people. So when, when Paul would write this, and we looked a couple weeks ago at his conversion experience, how he was a religious Jewish person, why he decided to follow Jesus because he had the need for forgiveness. And last week we saw him before uh, in Athens, a group of people who had a, a, an idol, a statue to an unknown God. And he said, listen, what you don't understand, I'm going to tell you about. Today we see him writing to the people at Rome, explaining to them why Jesus is coming is good news and brings great joy for everybody. Not just for Jewish people or not just for Christian people, but for everybody, because everybody has these commands on some level, and everybody has broken these commands, and everybody everywhere then is at odds with God. So what do we do about that? Let's take a look at this. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is where we're going to begin today, and it is an awesome verse. It is a wonderful, amazing, incredible verse. If we could go nowhere else from here, this is a great place to start, because Romans 8, verse 1, tells us something unique to the Christian faith, unique that Jesus alone can assure us and provide us of. And as we go through these next several verses, we'll see the uniqueness of what's at issue here. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I just spent the last few minutes condemning you. Wasn't that fun? Actually, I didn't do it. I let you do it to yourself. I let you look in the mirror and consider the very basic things that are fundamental to most religions and realize that you simply do not measure up. And religion as a rule is really, really good at that. It has existed based upon if I can make the people that are following this faith feel guilty, then I can get them to do things to somehow make their guilt go away. But the message that Paul writes here, the reason it's good news that brings great joy to all people is because now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That guilt that we all have, that guilt that we feel when we've done wrong, the reality that in our past we have messed up can be completely totally done away with in Christ Jesus. In fact, that word condemnation is sort of a legal term for somebody who is found guilty and deserves punishment. Let's just stop there. We'll dig into that in a minute. That's what we, we, we talked about. You have been, by your own admission, found guilty and deserve punishment. And Paul writes and says to these people in Rome and to us also, listen, now in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Once you have been placed in Christ Jesus, you don't have to feel condemned. When you place your faith in Him, when you receive the forgiveness that He offers, He takes care of that 
thing that is common to all of us in our religious experience, no matter where we've looked for answers, no matter how we've tried to deal with the realities of our life and our weaknesses and our failings, in Christ, Paul says, you can enter into a relationship that provides no condemnation. That is amazing news, isn't it? But we don't know what that is. It's a baptism. of the shared experience that we've already talked about today. So he goes on and he says this in verse 2. He says, no condemnation. Verse 2, because, how, how can we live without condemnation? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. So, so there it is again. In Christ there's no condemnation because through Christ Jesus, not through my human effort, not through my trying to be better and to do the right thing, not through my adherence to a certain set of laws or rules or religious rituals, but through Christ Jesus, through His death and by His resurrection, we have been set free from the law of of sin and death and the law of the Spirit of life is at work. So we have two laws here. Now the second law, the law of sin and death, we understand, we've talked about it before. It is the law that governs human experience from the time we're born. The law of sin and death, basically, as we've described it elsewhere, is this. When sin occurs, something dies. Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, do not eat from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, if they eat, what forbid that they die? You're like, well, wait a minute. Hmm. It didn't happen right away. Right? But something, when they ate of that sense of their innocence died. Suddenly they realized the condition they'd been living in up to that point, their entire existence, now they recognized it, were ashamed, and it went high. Their relationship with God changed. We might even say the intimacy they had, the openness they had with God died, because when He shows up looking for them, there they are. They're hiding. Something died. And ultimately, they, as human beings, like all human experience knows, ultimately, they would physically die. The law of sin and death is when sin enters the picture, there is death, something dies. Ultimately, physically, we all die. But we understand how that works in our own life. Many of us have killed relationships by how we've acted, by the things that we've done wrong in treating another person. We have lied. That was one of them right? We have lied, and so we've killed the trust somebody had in us, and maybe that relationship has been permanently harmed. We have, maybe we've killed a career. People have, you know, sacrificed careers because they've done something wrong and been caught, and then it's cost them their job or their their relationship with their employer, and and on and on and on. People have sacrificed or killed their relationship with parents, and parents have killed relationships with children, Brothers and sisters have killed relationships to each other by how they've treated each other, by the sinful choices they've made. They acted in sin, and something died. So the law of sin and death is something we know. It's our common experience. It's how we live our lives most of the time. And Paul says that there is something here that sets me free from the law of sin and death, namely, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life. So there's another law at work. 
the law of the spirit of life overcomes the law of sin and death. Now, let me illustrate this way. How many of you have ever taken a plane with you? Okay, good. When you're on the plane and they say, we're going to take off, and you buckle your seatbelt and you stays in the upright locked position and you're doing whatever you do and you're saying, I'm going to stay here on the plane. Yes. I have to let the pilot crew go because of some stress situations. Well, when a plane takes off, does the law of gravity cease to exist? Gravity is still very much at work. In fact, gravity will pay its first factor in the landing just a little while later. Let's take the view from the pilot's safety in the runway. But gravity doesn't cease to exist. There are just some other sets of laws that, because of the way the plane is constructed and because of the engineering design in the plane, allows the plane to overcome the law of gravity for the period of time it's in flight. So there are two sets of laws at work when that plane is flying, both equally valid, both still effective, but one enables the plane to overcome the other. That's what I think Paul is saying here. We know the law of sin and death. It's at work. We see it all around us. But there is another set of laws, the law of the spirit of life, that can overcome the law of the spirit or the law of sin and death. And that set of laws allows the things that normally we understand, particularly in our relationship with God, that our sin has caused a rift, has caused death in that relationship, that can be reversed and overcome by the law of the spirit of life. And the law of the spirit of life, we could boil it down into a couple of words. The words I would choose would be forgiveness and grace. The law of the spirit of life, the, this set of laws that God uses to overcome the law of sin and death is forgiveness and grace. And we understand that's usually how relationships are repaired. Then there's that rift between two people, between a parent and kids or husband and wife or or employers or friends or whatever, at some point, somebody has to exercise, usually the offended party, forgiveness and grace. And when forgiveness and grace is exercised, the relationship can be restored. The relationship can be renewed. In fact, though what had happened is still there, though that reality exists, the relationship can survive in spite of that because there's another set of laws at work to overcome it. And that's what this verse, that's what Paul says God did for us. How? Through Jesus Christ. He overcame the law of the spirit, the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit that would give life. Because we killed the relationship with God through our sin, and though we may try, and though we do try to somehow heal the relationship by doing good, by kind of making up for it or trying harder or praying more or going to church more or giving more or serving more. We find a lot of places in Scripture looking for ways to somehow do this just to do this. In fact, the, the, the example is we kind of feel like there's this scale in heaven and on one side God puts our bad deeds. We've done some bad deeds. And so the only way to, to even the scale, we would think, is to what? 
get some good stuff over here. I'm a stay and never even. No matter how much you put on this side, it never moves. It's built in death because the law of sin and death was our sin. It's still coming if you're like God and ultimately we'll see that manifest in our bodies breaking down and dying. But he has overcome it by saying, I'm going to give you a way back into the relationship. I'm going to take care of the problem that you created. I'm going to take the punishment you deserve, the condemnation that you deserve, the, the result of your sin, and rather than hold you responsible for it, I'm going to place those upon my son Jesus on the cross. Your son is go to the cross. He's going to die there for the sins of the world, for the things I did wrong, for the times my sin has killed my relationship with God, and he's going to die there for it so that I then am free from the law of sin and death. And the scale suddenly goes, not because of anything I did, but only because of what God did for me through Jesus. So now, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because in Jesus, by his death and resurrection, God has overcome what we know to be our normal experience. We've, we've gotten a list of rules, we've broke them, and we're at odds with God. He's overcome that by offering to us the opportunity to be forgiven and to receive his grace and to be welcomed back into relationship with him, to have that relationship restored. God has chosen to do that on our behalf and leaves it to us to either receive or not receive that gift that he has given us. That's what Paul is, is explaining here. That's how Paul is, is throwing it out there. God has made the offer. Will you receive it? And all of religious experience, all of the religions of the world have to deal with that question. What are you going to do about the fact you have broken the rules of whatever faith you go by. And that puts you at odds with whatever God you believe in. Most religions give us the scale. Just work harder, try harder, give more, pray more, go to this more, do that more, and somehow we'll get enough. But what Christianity says at its heart is that you can't do enough. So God has given us another way. He's overcome what you know is your experience by another set of laws through His Son, Jesus Christ. Religion, in fact, really puts us right where God wants us. We recognize that we need a Savior. And that's why when Jesus comes to us with forgiveness and grace and salvation, I come to you. He's born this day in the city of David.
have said and been taught to you. Let me start that way. I'm sure all of us have said. But some of us have seen that unwelcome flashing light behind us and heard that clarion call of a child, not just according to Dr. Wilson, and that polite officer who asked the question, and y'all have passed on that day, who attempted to break the fifth commandment of that particular right? When that happens, when we've been pulled over, it is a religious you're probably praying. But the, the second thing is you see in that encounter everything that's wrong with your life. Everything that's inadequate about your life. Because what you find when the officer pulls you over and you know you were speeding and he knows you were speeding and you know what that means both as far as the ticket you're going to get and the fine you'll have to pay and the points that will go on your license and who knows the insurance rate will go off and all the other stuff, you know in that minute that there's not anything you can do unless the officer stops that beautiful thing and sealing that mandate from you. Because there's no law you can appeal to. Now what happens in your mind is the same thing that happens with the scale. You start you start thinking. I don't know how long it takes the officer from the time he pulls his car up to a stop to get out and walk through a window, but in that minute or two, I'm going to guess your mind is racing. And I'm saying, okay, there's one text coming, and it's just a shotgun, so I can't mention that. Because, you know, apparently that's like somebody's giving birth. Maybe, maybe we can use that. And you begin to say, well, okay, what can I do? And you begin to, to think through, is there any excuse I can give? I'm late for a meeting. I have an appointment. I, I, I didn't see that that, uh, that speed limit sign, officer, sir, Mr. Super Cop, you, however you say it. Whatever it is, you, you begin to process. And, and at some point, I'm sure in that thinking, you have thoughts like this. Really, I, I wasn't even the fastest person on this highway today. Why didn't you catch that guy or that girl a few miles back that went flying around me? That's who we should be pulling over, not me. She or he was going like 20 miles. I was going under 18 over the speed limit. Surely she's worse than me. It's a religious mind. Because that's religion. That's it. Because you, you think about most religions of the world, we're always here. Even in Christianity, there's this temptation to begin to rationalize, to look for the excuse, to say things like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, they really deserved it, and they started it, and who knows what else we come up with. And somewhere we even get to that, well, there are people that are worse than I am. At least I didn't fill in the blank. Right, this person or that person. Religion is simply being religious. Why? Because the law of sin and death is at work, and Paul says that law is powerless to save you. Throughout history, have tried awfully hard to keep the rules really well. Paul was one of them. Paul was a Pharisee in the Jewish religion. Which, of all the people that were good rule keepers, they were good rule keepers. Probably the best way that we see it in, in the Bible is when 
there's this discussion that the Pharisees tied at this crisis. Now, they said tied in the past tense, meaning they said whatever. And it was so specific that they tied to the, to the smallest degree because they wanted to keep the law so closely because they thought they were so good at keeping the law, God looked down and went, wow, look at these guys. Look at these Pharisees. They're amazing. I need them on my team. And a lot of us live our lives like that. That, that we think if we just keep the law really good, God will want us on his team because, you know, he wants the best law keepers. Because the law is powerless. There's something the law cannot do, and that is save you. The law can only condemn. In fact, elsewhere in the book of Romans, he talks about that. And he says that the law was given, and its only use is to show you, as we went through those eight things before, that you have broken. And you deserve to be punished and separated from God. But notice what he says. What the law was powerless to do, he did this. God
that when that happens, what it, it shows you that you're kind of stuck where you are. Jesus is just waiting. You know, you're, you're counting on God's rain on a curve. The problem is there's this one guy who got a hundred. And so there's no curve. And so your only hope is if you go ask the people, hey, can I have Jesus' grave? And you know what God says? You can have his 100%. Jesus doesn't say, you know what? I need you to go study harder and you go find out. Jesus doesn't say, I need you to do some extra homework and if you turn this in, I'll boost your grade a few points. No, but Jesus says, his grade is your grade. His 100% is your 100%. The righteous requirements of the law are fully met in you. For those of us who are church folk, religious people, and I don't know how many of us are in that bucket, but kind of those of us who place our faith in Jesus, we can say this. Please be convinced that we don't somehow begin to think of ourselves as we're better law keepers than all those people out there who have gotten all those points and have nothing to do with it. sorts of issues in their life that know if you were to list the commandments that they've broken them, we don't go tell them, just try harder and God will love you more. No, we go tell them, hey Jesus, you don't have to feel guilty, you don't have to feel condemnation because we keep the condemnation for you. Just be a trust and you don't have to feel guilty. It's easy for God. That is the good news of great joy that's for everybody.
your faith that you can do it together with your family. That today you can do it. And you can receive 100% perfect faith even though none of us can give it. And you can leave here today with the reality of loving each one of your life. There is now no condemnation for you set of rules, you haven't come to either make the criteria harder or easier, Lord, you, you've come to treat your life and by your death and by your resurrection, you have made it possible that we can be forgiven for everything we've done wrong in our past and we right now. We thus place our faith in you. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who's never placed their faith in you, never come you as the one who has offered them this kind of a salvation, this good news of forgiveness and grace and restored relationship with God and with each other. Lord, I pray for the 